Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we're speaking with Steve McCormick. Steve is a venture partner at Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation, supporting a number of its portfolio organizations as a board member. He also is the co-founder of Earth Genome. Its work will be part of our conversation today and something we will turn to in a few minutes. Prior to starting Earth Genome, Steve served as the president of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and led the foundation through the development of new strategies in a number of programs, including environmental conservation. Before leading the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Steve worked at the Nature Conservancy for 32 years, the last six as its president and CEO. In that role, Steve oversaw operations in 30 countries as well as every state in the United States. He was responsible for an operating budget of over 500 million and a staff of over 4,000. What is most exciting to me is that through his amazing career, Steve has been on the forefront of treating nature as an asset, vital to the health and well-being of every one of us. That is a topic we've touched on in previous episodes of Voices of Nature, but today we'll explore it much more deeply. Steve, welcome to Voices of Nature. Well, it's great to be with you, Bob. Steve. You know, I, I only touched on the high points of your background. I'm sure I didn't do it justice, but just talk to us a little bit more about your background and really what, what started your, your passion for protecting and preserving nature. Uh, yeah, I grew up in California uh, and because of my parents' interests and living in Northern California, I was able to spend a good part of my childhood outdoors. Um, I mean, literally from my house, I could walk up into the hills, um, into mixed oak woodlands, which at the time we called the jungle, and just became enamored with the physical environment that I was, at the time, not really fully appreciative of. And then as I got older and went to high school, I read, I read uh, Silent Spring. One of the sort of one of the great books on the importance of nature, and I, I just became committed to spending my life involved in whatever I could to protect nature. And it was a kind of unformed um, direction at the time. But when I went to law school, I had a great professor taught land use and i thought gosh it's really it's land use and the the um the value of land uh, in its natural state but also for people that um kind of reinforced my commitment to spend a career in conservation so one one of the culminating moments of your your career and i alluded to this in the introduction is um the earth genome and that's what actually where you and i first first met each other or through that Talk to us a little bit about what Earth Genome is, your vision for creating it, and what you hope to hope to accomplish as it continues to grow and evolve. Yeah, the um, idea of Earth Genome um, came from my increasing appreciation for the um, the value of nature for human well-being. And although I had devoted my whole career 
to protecting nature for its own sake. And I still am devoted to that value and that ethos. Um, but when I was at the Nature Conservancy and was traveling in countries that had not um, created their own systems of parks and protected areas, and I was advocating for those um, those kinds of outcomes and using the value system that had been so fundamental to me, like saving nature, protecting nature, setting aside nature, all with the implication that it was to take nature away from humans. And in countries where people were living in nature and deriving their livelihoods directly from nature, that value system was arrogant, actually. Um, so I began to realize that we needed to reframe the thinking about nature, and that we should not only protect nature for its own sake, that parks and protected areas, wildlife refuges, et cetera, really are a one of the kind of greatest commitments of humanity and one of the most selfless commitments of humanity. But at the same time, we have to realize that our lives are dependent upon healthy natural systems. And so I, I felt when I was at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation that we should direct more of our philanthropy to advancing that concept. Um, and the term sustainability is a bit overused, but it's still relevant and valuable and meaningful. Um, and one of the eye-opening experiences I had was talking with corporate CEOs at a conference of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, in which they said, look, we, we really do want to make smarter decisions about using natural resources, but we don't have the information, which was startling to me because there's an enormous amount of data environmental data that form the basis of making decisions. But at the same time, I realized that that data is raw. It's like having it in a huge warehouse unorganized and just saying that it's out there is not helpful. So the concept of Earth Genome was to create a technology to curate and organize that data to make it more meaningful and insightful and turn raw data into information that could inform decision-making. Um, so Earth Genome was premised on the idea that using uh, raw data, turning it into kind of building blocks of information could reveal for decision-makers the true value of, um, of natural systems or natural capital, if you will, or ecosystem services uh, for those decision-makers, whether in a corporation or a government. One question I've always wanted to ask you is, um... You know, everything about the Earth Genome is, it's, it's a startup, right? It's, it is a startup, it's size is a startup, it, it, it's ethos, it's kind of culture is all startup oriented. Why did you create it as its own entity rather than housing it inside of one of these, you know, large global organizations that you used to run? I mean, what, what was the advantage to being a, to taking the startup route? Well, it's a really good question. <laughs> I have several reasons. Actually, initially, we did look around for a suitable existing organization to, um, to test and incubate the idea. Um, but we, even though we were offering funding, uh, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm because it didn't quite fit what existing organizations were doing. And candidly, we didn't get the, we didn't have the confidence that any existing organization would 
would be able to or willing to maintain the kind of experimental nature of the concept because we, we knew it would take some prototyping and some beta testing of the technology build out of the technology uh, so that was one reason i have to say another reason was i had a lot of experience with big organizations and they're immensely effective but they also have become kind of cumbersome um, and I, living uh, at the time in Silicon Valley, was impressed with the agility and imagination of startup organizations that, you know, they would try something. If it didn't work, they'd learn quickly from it, adapt, and try another approach. Uh, and that appealed to me. And I was also personally interested in starting from scratch at the time. Uh, and I also wanted an organization that combine the passion and heart of a nonprofit, the dedication to a mission um, and to something that was socially be uh, beneficial, but sort of had the, the mindset of a business. Um, and in that regard, what I was most interested in exploring was how, could, could a nonprofit organization create a, a product or a service that had uh, sufficient value that customers or clients would pay for it. Um, and so we actually explored creating a for-profit at the outset, but there were shortcomings in doing that. And I didn't want to have uh, an entity that required equity and searching for investors who were looking for financial return. So we set it up as a nonprofit, but as I say, we wanted to have a, a kind of business mindset imbued in that nonprofit as well. So that, that was the sort of set of reasons why we set it up as a nonprofit. That makes perfect sense. But I guess I have to ask. So it seems we're at this moment and, you know, we could argue whether or not it's now's the right moment or it should have happened decades ago, but we're in this scramble for solutions to all these, you know, environmental and climate challenges that we're facing. I mean, is are these solutions going to come from more of the, the, the startups and the startup mindset? Or, you know, do we, do we still need the, the big global NGOs, governmental organizations like the UN and the World Bank? Like, how, how, do, we, how do we bring these various actors together to start quickly bringing to scale some of the ideas that they have? That's a really good question. I, we need the full suite of, um, of organizations and enterprises from the very large established um, private nonprofit organizations, the big international organizations like the UN. Um, we also need scrappy startups that can move quickly and with great agility, uh, trying new ideas and new approaches. No single approach will ever be the silver bullet that solves or addresses any major social problem. So we, we need a number, number of interventions or uh, applications, if you will. And I think that we have a much more robust and diverse group of players in the conservation and environment arena than ever before. So I, I'm really quite hopeful. And my role at the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation is to help cultivate and nurture startup organizations that do show some promise to um, address some major social problem with a novel idea. Uh, and it's been fun working with them because they, they, they have a 
uh, a freshness and an energy and, and frankly, a risk orientation that a lot of the bigger organizations don't have. On the other hand, the big organizations are big and they have reputations and they have extraordinary talent um, and they have influence and network. So the whole suite is really essential. How do we more quickly, more effectively scale the ideas into things that are really, you know, these game changers that everyone seems to be looking for? And frankly, we're probably needing more and more. I mean, I think it was Sherry Hinnish. I mean, she she's like a supply chain expert in her podcast. She said something along the lines of, you know, we don't lack for ideas. We don't lack for people with passion. We don't lack for, you know, the, the investment. But why aren't these ideas scaling? Why aren't they? Why is it taking so long for an idea to incubate into something big that can really drive change across society? Yeah, I I think some of the um, emergent ideas um, are beginning to take hold. And as I I said at the outset, I think that the pathway to scale is to demonstrate the value of nature to human well-being you know for again for a long time and i was part of this the conservation community in this country especially framed conservation as um as a commitment to saving nature and wildlife in its quote-unquote natural state and, that, and that's a very laudable, very important idea. And, th- and there are benefits that are incalculable, and you can't put a value on that. They, they defy quantitative measurement. But in so narrowly framing conservation, only through that lens, we overlook the fact that every human being is dependent on functioning, healthy, natural systems uh, for our very survival. And you know, when conservation would talk about saving the earth, Really, the Earth Earth will be just fine. Earth has been through five major extinction events, catastrophic events, um, but Earth will abide. We're really talking about is survival of humanity, and so I think increasing awareness of that uh, that value of nature. um, And I by no means want to dismiss the value of nature for its own sake. As I said, I think that's that's essential too, but. There is greater recognition amongst major um, entities that use or make decisions about nature, um, about natural resources, that those values need to be captured and need to be monetized. Um, And as corporations realize that their long-term survival is, as a business, is dependent on somehow capturing and incorporating those values in their decision-making, same thing with governments. I do think that we are close to having both policy and corporate practices shaped around that fundamental recognition that with that nature is the wellspring of our own survival. Take us through that a little bit more, Steve. Like how do how do you actually assign value to nature, be it water, be it air, be it, I don't know, timber, land? I mean, we're so used to just taking without any regard for what the cost may be to society. How, I mean, and this gets to what Earth Genome does. Like, what's the process by which you actually assign value to something we've taken for granted for so long? Yeah, you know, and and in responding to that, I, I want to underscore that I, I don't want to trivialize um, or discount the un um, the immeasurable 
values of nature. I mean, what, what's the value of, of a sunset? Um, <laughs> True. You know, what's what's, what's yep. the value of the sense of kind of personal reflection and solitude that we get when we go into a national park? You can't put a monetary value on that. On the other hand, then there are, there are um, values that can be reflected in financial terms. And you mentioned water. That's perhaps one of the easiest ones. Um, a watershed that is healthy provides clean, reliable, fresh water for um, communities. And so watershed management by water utility districts um, captures that value and ensures the watersheds are conserved by having the ratepayers um, cover the cost of managing and maintaining a protected watershed. Same thing with soil. Healthy soil um, is essential for preventing erosion. And it's important for ensuring crop vitality and viability over time. Um, so there, there are values of natural systems and ecosystem services, as, as they've come to be called, that can be quantified. Um, the trick is to do that quantification in a very precise or specific context. So I'll give you an example with Earth Genome. We began working with Dow Chemical, huge corporation that has a petrochemical facility on the mouth of the Brazos River in Texas. They use an enormous amount of water and they derive that water from dams on various locations on the Brazos River. They need more water and we're looking at expanding existing infrastructure um, or building new dams, uh, but had heard that there was an alternative, a so-called green infrastructure in the form of recreating natural wetlands, which serve as a de facto reservoir. Um, but the value of that needed to be quantified in a way that was relevant to their decision. And they, just to say, well, there is a value there was not enough. So Earth Genome um, created a decision support tool, taking lots of relevant data on slope, on uh, a source of water, on water flows, and <clears throat> enabled Dow Chemical to determine where they would get the most water for their facility if they created a new wetland, and how much it would um, yield, and how, how much water could be sold to other users. Um, so they, they could create a financial calculation and compare that with the cost and benefits of traditional gray infrastructure. And they concluded that, in fact, it made a great deal more sense to do green infrastructure in the form of restoring wetlands. So there was a situation where you could put a monetary value on a natural asset in a specific decision context. And by putting it in terms of just hard dollars and cents, you started speaking the language of the executives at Dow Chemical, right? I mean, you, yeah, you and, kind you know, of you brought know, nature yeah. into their world. Is that is that yeah. what it was? We brought nature into their world by being able to enter their world with financial information and to basically speak in their own language. I, 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 I'm still a big believer in advocacy and in policy and in creating, frankly, more regulations on use of natural resources. 
So I don't want to suggest that this is the only way to ensure that we maintain sustainable practices. Um, but in some cases, having the um, revelation for a big corporation like Dow Chemical just makes it a lot easier for them. And it also means that they will be persuasive in the networks that they work in. Dow has encouraged other corporations to work with us. And there's one audience in, in all of this that, to me, has always struck me as particularly important, and that's the ultimate owners of, of Dow, right? The investors. And yeah. Yes. It, right? Like, there's only so much Dow can do without, without either getting the approval or, or disapproval from its investors. Why, why are financial institutions or pension funds or, you know, the world banks of the world becoming, I, I would argue, kind of the critical players in this entire conversation of how we protect nature and why we protect nature. Well, investors uh, indeed can be the most influential actors. Um, and increasingly, investors are, are actually taking a longer view on their investments, and, or I could put it another way, the long view is shortening. I mean, we're seeing now the consequences of, of climate change. And the notion that, well, as an investor, I don't need to worry because it'll be decades before any kind of negative impacts occur. And my investment horizon is maybe five years. That, that's no longer the case. A five-year horizon <laughs> has to embrace or take into account the consequences of unsustainable practice. So a really good example of what you just described, Bob, is the recent election of uh, three board members to Exxon that were put up by an investor uh, that were antagonistic to existing management. And, and they made a business case. It was not just on a, uh, an ethical argument that Exxon should have uh, move away from uh, fossil-based fuels. They said, look, this, as an investor, this is, this is unwise. We, we, our investment is at stake, and, and we can prove that on the financial statements. I think we're going to see more, a lot more of that. And boy, I'll tell you, that was a wake-up call, not just for Exxon, but for corporations around the world. And do you see the investors, you know, taking, I think you used the word, antagonistic approach? Or is there a more collaborative approach that we don't necessarily see that's occurring kind of day in and day out? I think, you know, it's both. Um, and I think it's good to have both. Um, there will be the, the kind of... Um, We'll say moral suasion coming from investors, and I think that can be influential. But I also think it's helpful to have the um, the antagonistic or almost confrontational approach. Again, this is by investors. This is not um, you know outsiders who are asserting that a corporation is being socially irresponsible. This is an investor saying you're being irresponsible as a business because of the socially irresponsible practices. So I I think the the um, soft persuasion coupled with occasional um, more aggressive tactics like we just saw with Exxon. Uh, I, I'm convinced in the next couple of years, we will see significant changes in corporate behavior. And when it comes to protecting or investing in the environment, however you want to frame it, are there, are there particular aspects that we're going to see the most the most action or the most progress. I mean, you're you know you your work with Dow focused on water, 
there's a lot of talk about, you know, carbon taxes to, to try and get CO2 or prevent CO2 from entering the atmosphere. Like where, where's the action going to be and where can the most impact be had? Well, again, I, I, I think it's kind of like a pincer move. I think we need both regulatory um, responses um, and direct investor response. So on the regulatory side, I mean, I'm a big believer in something like carbon tax because the conventional economic concept of externalities, corporation, the release of greenhouse gases by whatever source is creating a cost to society. And that cost is not reflected by or borne by either the entity or the individual for that matter, those of us who drive cars, um, that is imposed on society. So frankly, gasoline is artificially cheap. If, if gasoline price at the pump reflected and incorporated the cost of society at large, in this country we'd be paying at least $10 a gallon. Well, I'm going to pay ten dollars a gallon. I'm either going to go get an electric car, or I'm going to cut way back on my driving. Um, so a carbon tax does that. I mean, it may be a bit um, imprecise, but it it has consequence. It's saying, look, there's a cost to society. Those who are are generating that cost need in some some way to pay for it. Um, so I think there should be a public policy or regulatory response, and then at the same time. And this is where they work in tandem. Investors will even be more likely to say, look, I, we need to move away from practices that are causing harms and costs to society. Because one way or another, we will pay that price. Um, and we need, as investors, to <laughs> be more wise in how we seek real returns for our investment. But how can we as individuals affect that change, right? I mean, we're we're not like you, Steve. We we don't, you know, we haven't run these impressive organizations. We don't have all this data that we could walk into an executive suite and say, this is what you need to do. You're talking about some, I mean, major global issues, you know, carbon, carbon pollution, so on and so forth. Like, what can those of us listening to this podcast do to lend our voice, lend our heart, lend our efforts to to trying to bring this change? Yeah, you know, I get asked that question a lot. And I, you know, I to be clear, um, this is not false modesty by any means. I mean, even though I've devoted my life to conservation, my impact is infinitesimal in its own way too. So it's the collective action that we have to keep in mind. And even as individuals, it's our own, how we lead our own lives does add up. Um, it's like voting. If you say, well, my vote doesn't count. And if enough people feel that way, we've seen the last few elections that these, <laughs> uh, these close contests, you know, every vote does count. And it's the right. same thing with how we carry out our own lives. And by the same token, being, being attentive to it, just having it at top of mind, um, and not being a shrill or, um, a high, highly critical uh, of other people's behaviors, but just sort of calling out amongst your friends and your family. I mean, we all can make a difference. And, you know, frankly, the the news that was released yesterday uh, by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was carried widely by news media. It, it's, it, 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 it's just driving home the point how, how much this, <laughs> this issue of climate change 
is affecting all of our lives. I mean, I'm seeing it here in California with these fires. I have had friends whose homes have been destroyed. Um, we're seeing it with the fires in Greece that are going on right now. We saw it with the floods in Europe. It is The future is here. And so all of us need to be mindful of that in our own small way. And it may seem like it's insignificant or not even worth it. It is worth it. Everybody can, can lead their own lives in a way that is consistent with more sustainable use of natural resources. And who, I mean, who do you look to as someone or some organization that's really embodying and living those values? Like if you want to, again, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be inspired to do a little bit better, like where, where do you go? Well, there's a lot of great organizations now, far more than when I started my career. Um, uh, There are the kind of, stalwart conventional organizations like the Nature Conservancy, like World Wildlife Fund, like Conservation International and, and others, all doing really great work. Um, there are the more, we'll say, adversarial organizations, which I still am a strong believer in, the Sierra Club, Greenpeace, um, Natural Resources Defense Council, great organization. Um, there are... Uh, there are a lot of startups, and I mentioned that Earth Genome is a nonprofit. There are a number of for-profit organizations that um, are, are, are trying to address the issue in a way that actually can be a viable business. So we've supported an organization called Frost Methane that's finding a way to um, capture and use methane gases that are far more problematic as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And they have a revenue model. And I'm I'm really impressed with that. So even in the for-profit world, there's more opportunities for investors to do so-called social impact investing and, and get meaningful financial returns. And there are social investment funds through the big mutual fund companies. So through your contributions, through your own life, and through your investments, you can contribute to the future. And that's a great segue to the to the last question. And this is a question I ask everyone, which is in the, you know, in the face of all these challenges that, you know, the fires that you alluded to, the the report that came out that that essentially said we have 10 years to to turn this around. Otherwise we're going to face truly catastrophic consequences beyond anything we've seen thus far. Like how do you how do you take hope in the face of all this, of all these challenges? And what would be the kind of the words of hope and inspiration that you'd want to share with everyone listening to this? Uh, I, you know, I am very hopeful um, and not blindly so. Um, I mean, it's not whistling in the dark. I, I'm hopeful because there, there are more organizations that are devoted to addressing this problem in various ways. And as I said earlier, I think it requires lots of different tactics uh, acting collectively. I am hopeful because I've seen firsthand the genuine articulation and commitment of corporate leadership and investors to change practices and behaviors. Um, And then finally, and this will sound (laughs) perhaps not that hopeful, but Humankind has always muddled through. Um, it's never perfect. It's never linear. And it is never 
as predictable. But I do think maybe it's right on the brink of being too late that the evidence now has become so undeniable that every one of our lives now, in one way or another, is either affected or at least the issue is visible to us every day, that the weight of public sentiment and the response from the public sector, the corporate sector, the nonprofit sector is, um, is increasing. I, 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 do, I think we'll muddle through. I think there will, we saw from the report that there will be very serious consequences and we will have to bear through those. But I don't think that we will drive off the cliff. I really don't. I think we'll not only slam on the brakes and avoid the cliff, I think we'll turn around and move in the right direction. That is a wonderful way to end this conversation, Steve. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for all, the, all that you've been doing. And um, thank you for all the wonderful insights you shared with us today. Thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, I have, 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 I have,